Thank you guys for joining. This is uh, Single Minded Conversations. It's a show about stuff. Uh, I'm your host, Jesse Single. Uh, I'm a journalist and a podcaster, and I do this now, and that's cool. So I'm mostly just going to take your questions tonight. If you have any, you should get in the queue. Kyle, I see you. I'll call on you first once I get through my little spiel. I wanted to talk a little bit about a... uh, a dumb Twitter controversy that I found pretty telling. It involves a, a professor of history at, I think, uh, Dallas College. Uh, this was yesterday. Basically, John Madden died. He's a famous uh, football coach and commentator, and, and his name is on the long-running Madden football series, which I, like um, like many males, played at various points. Just every year, there's a new edition of Madden, football simulator, NFL simulator. This professor did a tweet store basically – uh, saying that, I'll just quote from it a little bit. I have a lot of opinions on John Madden. The creation of the Madden video game was not a great development for the U.S. It further glamorized violence and dehumanized black athletes, helping to establish plantation cosplay. Yes, he's referring to a video game as plantation cosplay, a football video game that has grown worse in the area of fantasy football. He um he eventually shut down his account because so many people piled on him. I, I'm not even going to give his name because it's not necessary. But it, what struck me about this is he made these very strong causal claims about the effects of media on people. He basically suggested that playing simulated football games really made people's points of views on important matters of justice worse. And this has always struck me as an annoying feature uh, of a lot of academics and journalists, they make really strong claims about the causal impact of media that I think go way beyond the evidence we have. Because when you think about something like the Madden football series, it, it wouldn't exist if football wasn't really popular. It wouldn't exist if people didn't have the leisure time to play video games. It's it's nested in a very big and complicated system. And I'm curious about this thing where you take one little aspect of how people spend their time, whether playing Madden or whether watching South Park or doing whatever else, and you say, this is making them worse. This is having a negative impact on the children. Part of this is just normal uh, moral panic bullshit uh, that goes back forever. You know, the, the, the ancient Greeks were worried about the kids today. My favorite example is in the 1950s, there was a massive scare over comic books. Uh, I think one of the first ever articles I had in print was a book review uh, of a book by David Hodge on the subject in the Washington Monthly when I was an intern there. But, you know, this got to the point of congressional hearings, full-blown investigation that comic books were, were turning the nice white kids of the suburbs into remorseless killers. So I think basically what happens is if you're an academic and you study something niche like video games or some other aspect of the culture, It's in your interest to tell people, no, this is a big deal. I'm not just some niche academic studying this little thing, but South Park is, uh, it's turning kids racist and anti-Semitic. Football is, it's, uh, you know, plantation cosplay. It's making people not respect black athletes. And I just sort of wish people would have, a lot of the people who make these arguments in other situations would complain about like not listening to the science. I think they're from the set that have the, in this house, we believe science is real science on their lawns, but I don't know if anything like from that, if there's anything I've learned from the last few years is that people are very inconsistent in terms of when they do and don't uh, listen to science. Not that science ever speaks in one voice, but this is sort of similar to Scott Alexander's concept of, um, I think he calls it asymmetric appeals to evidence. People 
I mean, I, I wrote a book partly about this, but if, if the claim is something we want to believe, people accept the most bullshit or, or fake evidence. And I don't know if this struck me as a good example of this. I also, it's just interesting that when someone like John Madden dies, who say whatever you think of him, he's not like Hitler, just that impulse to immediately do a thread dragging him. Like, wow, you, you got the dead 85 year old guy. Good job. Anyway, Kyle, what is up? Yeah, hey, can hey. you hear me? I can hear you. Awesome. How's it going? Hey, Jesse, it's an honor to speak to you. Thank you for taking my call. Um, Thank I, you. Well, something that's been bothering me re- recently is uh, I, I would like to get like kind of your cohesive take on critical race theory. Uh, I totally agree with you when it comes to uh, the likes of Robin D'Angelo. But when it comes to jurisprudence, etc., um, I, w- I would have to I would have to get on the side of CRT. I was hoping you could expound on that a little bit. Sure. I mean, so I think both sides in this culture war have sort of capitalized off the fact that CRT is often used in a vague and imprecise way. Uh, I. I think Robin D'Angelo is like is is a breed from a breed of sort of grifty race trainers that we've had forever, and I don't necessarily associate her with critical race theory. Um, critical race theory, from what I've what little reading I've done about it, which is basically just reading the intro book, uh, the Delgado book. I think it's just introduction to critical race theory, Delgado, and I forget who. You can tell what an expert I am here. Um, I've read that. I've read some about. Um, the main theory by Derek Bell, this is like the theory he's he's most known for, um, interest convergence, which basically says that we can't make progress unless white people are convinced racial progress is in their own interest. And I'm, I've been working forever on a newsletter about that. It, there's a, a fellow black scholar from Yale who points out that this was always a really half-baked theory because Bell never really explained what he meant. Like, to say white people will we'll only make pro- racial progress is only possible if white people think it's in their interest. Okay. How, how many white people, what if, what if half the white people who support a bill do it because of their own self-interest and half do it because they feel a strong moral compunction against racism. Um, it's this idea that was incredibly influential, but was just truly underspecified. And there's a really good article. And I think the Northwestern law review about this that I found very convincing. So I think in some cases, people, frankly, overstate the importance or the revolutionary nature of a lot of critical race theory ideas. Uh, My sense is intersectionality is a genuinely useful one when you don't bastardize it. Like that idea that a a black female worker faces different potential sources of discrimination than a black male one. Uh, Stuff like that, I think, is useful but i i don't know i the the introduction to critical race theory book is interesting because it just it'll have these throwaway lines about sort of like uh, the vaguely anti-enlightenment stuff without explaining what it is about the enlightenment we should want to overthrow stuff like that i'm rambling a little but were there specific ideas from within crt that you're referring to uh not necessarily like how would it how would it even be used in practice like i understand it's a useful perspective of history but um you know when you talk about reparations or like sentencing how how do you even use that uh, 
Yeah, I mean, that that's my other argument is I think on the left, we sometimes have a tendency to like stake out, build giant elaborate fortresses on hills that aren't worth defending. And, you know, there's some useful ideas within CRT. There's also some not useful ideas within it. But at the end of the day, racism is racism. And if something's unfair, I think a lot of people will understand that. And I'm not sure you always need... I haven't, frankly, in my limited explorations of it, I haven't seen that many places where CRT makes a point that couldn't be made in a simpler or cleaner way. And this is sort of a long-running critique of of a lot of the left. Noam Chomsky had a famous uh, listserv post, actually, about, you know, uh, Foucault and Derrida, people in that circle, where he said, with most of these guys, like, I don't, I A, I can't understand what they're saying. Maybe I'm not smart enough, but I can. And this is Noam Chomsky speaking. But B, when I can parse out what they're saying, it doesn't seem like they're saying anything new that couldn't be said in simpler terms. And I, I think sometimes with some of what I've read of critical race theory, that that is the case. But I haven't looked that into it. I do think that the vast majority of the bills purportedly written to ban CRT are not banning CRT. They're banning a host of other stuff or leading to people making creepy lists of, of books. I, I think the laws have been terrible. And um, th- this whole thing is such a culture war clusterfuck that, I don't know, part of me wants to write and tweet about it. Part of me wants to run in the other direction. But uh, I, have I sort of answered your question? I feel like I've been very vague here or general. Well, I mean, hey, if you haven't done that much studying on it, like you haven't, but I definitely agree with your takes on it. Um it's helpful. It doesn't really apply that much to me, but you're right. It's total. It's a total culture war. Um, well, have there been elements you found useful, or that that you found enlightening? Yeah, yeah. To be honest, I mean, um, so I'm from New England. Um, not a lot of black people around here. Uh, <laughs> um, so when you when you try and understand people from where they're coming from, that is that is helpful. Uh, it's a that's a terrible answer, but um... well, no, no, no it's, not, it's not a terrible answer. But I think it gets to what I'm seeing. I'm saying we're like so when I, um, I have very little formal or informal education. This, but when I when I took a grad school course in African American history, it fucking blew my mind. There was so much shit I didn't know about the about Reconstruction and the failure of Reconstruction and the way you can draw a line straight from that to today in many ways. And then, you know, I read the New Jim Crow like everyone. 10 years ago. And that, that taught me a lot, but it, it all, it taught me a lot in language I could understand. I didn't think that I would need to sort of gain entree into an entirely new way of thinking and intellectual movement, um, to grok those points. Right. Yeah. I mean, Hey, you got it. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to say was, uh, Baba Booey. And I did want to ask, uh, how does the size of your penis compare to that of Howard's? Thank you, Kyle. <laughs> we'll get into that in a later episode. Uh, Chewy, what's up? Hey, Jesse. Um, a happy New Year, because I probably won't talk to any of you or, any of you, um, or hear from you before then. So happy New Year to you all. Yeah. Um, uh, this is this going to be more of a comment, really, than a question. Um, and hey, the one thing I wanted to say is, uh, Jacob, who's behind me, every time I see his goddamn picture, I get really hungry because those fries and that man 
Yeah, the mayonnaise looks really good. I agree. So, Jacob, salivating every time you talk. You can take that however you want. Um, uh, This is from just more a comment. I was actually, it's kind of like a follow-up comment on the last question that I had asked of you, like the bleakness of journalism. Um, And it's really just sort of like bumping off the thing that you posted, um, (laughs) that Vox article um, that was like, overwrought about how things like Parks and Rec are now somehow widely considered to be cringeworthy. And it just, it was just interesting. Like I I said that question and then that article came out and I had read it before you had posted about it. And it was just, it felt like exactly further evidence of this like trend among a set of journalists to just like label everything in cynical ways. You know, like there's the bleakness that I had talked about and asked you about. And there's also this like just deep cynicism um, that anything that is genuine is bad. Um, yeah. And it, it just, it just felt so awful. I read this article and I stopped reading halfway through. I mean, when I got to the thing that was like widely considered, you know, Parks and Rec is widely considered to be cringe or whatever. I was like, well, widely considered is doing so much work there. Um, yeah. I- and it, this is, this is more a comment about like how it was more evidence of, this deep cynicism among a certain set of journalists that I just, I don't, I don't understand really. I don't get why they're so cynical. Yeah. I think it's a mix of, um, and I should say we, we only have one other person in the queue. So if any other one, anyone else has a question, you should jump in now. I think it's a mix of cynicism and sort of like cowardice and, and um, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by cowardice? Well, it's sort of leading from behind. I mean, this whole so this was a piece in box that people can look up. I mentioned in my Twitter feed, but um, these are this is a culture writer who I don't think thinks she's really allowed to have her own opinion on Parks and Rec or <laughs> like Harry Potter. She's clearly just outsourcing her opinions to other culture writers, and yeah. I think a lot of people. Um, that's what I mean by cowardice. There's there's no sense of independent thinking, and and like you said, that phrase is widely considered to. She's really just saying, like, some other culture writers in her orbit feel this way. So it's been determined, as though this was handed down by God on tablets, that um, Parks and Rec is no longer cool. But I, I doubt there's any hard data to suggest, like, Parks and Rec is any, you know, it's it's an older series now. But I'm sure it gets people stream the shit out of it. I give it a rewatch every few years. So, um, yeah, it's cowardice. And then, like you said, it's like that real aversion to earnestness that I view as a hallmark of like the worst of the Gawker era. Like, Oh, you like something, you believe in something. Well, you're a piece of shit. I, it's just so puerile. And I, I hate it because partly because I have some of those tendencies myself. I'm, I'm working on a newsletter about this, but, um, yeah. And I, yeah, um, and, 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 you know, one thing about it's, it's interesting because, you mentioned the sort of like the the stuff that came out after like the after Madden died, and I, I want to contrast it in a good way with the thing like the articles that came out because Harry Reid died on the same day, and Harry Reid was a really incredible man, um, a really incredible politician, and quite frankly, the 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 articles and the obituaries really like highlighted how good of a person he was, and it was unusual among political writing um, because it wasn't just like deeply cynical. It was so many of the stories talked about, you know, like who he was as a politician and as a person. And I think people are oftentimes overly cynical about politicians. I really do. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think this comes from the fact that I worked in politics and I really like, I knew these people and they almost all go into it for 
earnest reasons. Um, and so, like, I don't, there, it was like, there's, there's an example of how people can write in a way that's not cynical, you know, like, and just write about the good things about a person or, or a topic or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. Again, this is, this is comment. This is not question. So, yeah, no, I appreciate you. I'm with you. I think, um, one, I'm going to move on to Jacob, but I think one aspect of what you just said is that political journalists, I do think are a little bit more normie and earnest than, um, culture writers. That's like a slight over generalization, but they're, you know, they're in that world where people get genuinely excited about public figures and, and excited about political change. So I just think it's like sort of a different group, but um, that, that was a noteworthy distinction. And uh, thank you for the call. Yep. Thanks. Jacob, he of the delicious French fries. What's up? (laughs) Hello. Good evening. And to a chewy and anybody else, you too could get those French fries at an Italian restaurant in suburban Chicago. The place is still open. And I was just there a few weeks ago, actually. And they, Nuovo. What's it called? N-U-O-V-O. Nuovo. It's like 10 minutes, 15 minutes outside Chicago in the northern suburbs. Yeah. So um, just uh, firstly, just a quick question, Jesse. Remember earlier this year, there was some discussion in the Patreon about a potential in-person blocked and reported event of some sort. And I'm guessing that didn't yeah. happen because of the COVID surge. Is that the case? Yeah, we got nervous about Delta in the fall. Um, I am hoping we can finally make this happen in like late March or April. And there's talks. Uh, I I desperately want to do it. I think it'd be so fun. But uh, yeah, it's not going to happen until well into next year, unfortunately. Yeah, which is, this is the biggest, the most harmful thing caused by the coronavirus. Is this, in my opinion. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I actually just found out a little while ago that there are people getting Pfizer and Moderna tattoos. So perhaps we can make that an activity at the meetup. Yes, I like that. But uh, yeah, so one question I had for you is if you could uh, flesh out your views on Israel and Palestine, because I know that in the past you've been associated with some groups that people have perceived as being anti-Semitic. So I was wondering if you could just talk about your views on Israel and Palestine. Anti-Semitic? What uh, what are you referring to there? I'm not actually recalling off the top of my head, but if memory serves, you in the past have like I think donated or raised funds for. Oh, I did. Yeah, I raised. So I raised money for the. I did the Gaza 5K, which raises money for UNRWA, which is a UN agency that provides you know support for. for Gaza and for Palestinian refugees. Uh, they operate in a very fucked up part of the world in Gaza. And there have been some controversies there. I looked into them. I didn't think any of them warranted the claim that I was like raising money for a terrorist supporting organization. Um, the short version of my views are it's complicated. And this is one of those issues. I like, I always feel like I shouldn't really wade into because the combination of how toxic it is and how I'm really not don't have the expertise, but I, I basically am one of those Jews who, who thinks Israel treats Palestinians horribly. And I've had more and more trouble coming up with reasons not to use the apartheid label. I've also been frustrated that like, I think when people on the left use Zionist as a dirty term, I, I find that disgusting because it, um, you're ignoring a lot of history there. Like whatever's going on, you're, you're ignoring the fact that, this country was born for a reason. And I, I don't know if the, the way Israel is sometimes talked about, even among people whose 
substantive critiques I agree with sort of creeps me out. And I think it's just, I, I think not understanding what Zionism is or where it comes from and treating it as inherently, I don't know. You can already tell how conflicted I am on this, but, but my, my, sure. most, my core view is that, um, uh, the occupation is terrible and there has, and I have no hope it's going to end, but I think, um, life as a Palestinian, particularly in Gaza is it's like, there are not very many places in the world you would less rather be. And of course, Hamas bears a lot of responsibility for the day-to-day nightmare there, but you know, Hamas gained power for a reason. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Have you ever personally visited Israel or Palestine at any point? Yeah, I've been there twice. I went once on, um, a science nerd youth trip when I was like 13 ish. And then in grad school, I went and we spent 10 days sort of talking to this was a so-called policy workshop. So we spent 10 days talking to everyone from old PLO veterans in Ramallah to like far right settlers. And it, um, it, you know, this is completely anecdotal, but it just sure. emphasized there, there was no hope at all. There's, there's no hope for like a peaceful two state solution. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely un- understand that perspective. But yeah, that was a song I've wondered about because it is one of the things that folks do say about you, you know, out on the internet. So yeah, Twitter. I mean, Twitter is ridiculous. Uh, I had extended family members who were mad I raised money for UNRWA, but whatever. I'm gonna, I, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm an adult, as they say. Uh, and the, uh, the only other thing was during the trip, we got a tour of a. Um, this like fairly ramshackle Palestinian village where they had pooled all their resources to build a one room schoolhouse mm-hmm. to educate their kids. And then one day Israel shows up and they didn't have the right paperwork and they bulldoze the schoolhouse. So I think that is the kind of daily humiliation that where there's not a security justification for it. And I think that kind of stuff is rampant and it infuriates me because while I don't have a direct connection to Israel, I do think being Jewish, like, I don't know, I feel some sense of, I don't know, just something like it's something we should speak out about. But sure. I understand there's a lot of complexity there. Yeah, and uh, to completely change the subject, what do we know about the whereabouts and status of Yashara Lee? Oh, God, that's a whole other... Uh, yeah, Katie just informed me last night that he was back on Twitter. But uh, Yes, he just resurfaced yeah. after months of being who knows where. So, Man, anyone who hasn't looked into the Yashara Lee story, that's Y-A-S-H-A-R Ali, A-L-I, you should... Uh, you should definitely do so. But um, anyway, thank you for the call, Jacob. I appreciate it. Have a good evening, Jesse. Sorry I gave such a muddled answer on Israel, but it's just a hard thing to uh, yeah. talk about con- contemporaneously. Emily, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. Good. Cute cat, by the way. Oh, thank you. I, I love the emotionally disturbed cat meme. One of my faves. Um, so... <laughs> A little context, I've worked in the helping professions with children for the past couple of years, mental health, and now I'm in early childhood. And I've really appreciated your research and your writing about sort of the political extreme, like, especially the gender ideology, you know, some of the CRT stuff. Um, And I read about it, and I'm just like, yes, like, I'm so glad someone's talking about it. And I have not encountered a lot of it myself, but... I also look at these issues and I'm like, they're so big and I'm not in management. You know, I'm a pretty low level employee. And like, if I were to see something that like didn't sit right with me or like I knew wasn't like goes against research, like I'm always like, well, what could I do about it? Or, and so I was curious, like in your opinion, what could someone who is not management and is not in a union workplace 
you know, when they see, you know, some of this weird, like, gender stuff going on um, that you don't think is right, like, what's the best thing they could do? Or what would you advise them to do? Yeah, I think a lot of the time, it. I mean, it would depend on the specifics, but, you know, it depends in part on how secure you are in the position, the relationship you have with your supervisor. Um, I, in my own work, I've just tried to emphasize the fact that like, if you care about these issues, you should want evidence-based approaches. And I, I think that's really useful for, you know, there's a subset of diversity trainings that I think are potentially counterproductive. There's the implicit association test, which I think has almost no evidence behind it. In those situations, you can just point to the lack of evidence. I think things like, you know, gender trainings and gender curricula, it's so toxic and so heated that if it were my job on the line and stuff like that came up, the the best answer might be to just keep your mouth shut. And and I hate to say that, but I just, it's, I've just, it, I don't know. It seems like there's a real witch hunt atmosphere at the moment. Um, when it comes to stuff like, you know, there's a group called the gender spectrum that will do these curricula about how, biological sex is a spectrum and gender is a spectrum and everything's a spectrum. And a lot of it just isn't really based on a coherent or accurate understanding of science, especially the idea of biological sex being a spectrum. So to the extent you can push back just by being like, I want to teach kids accurate stuff. And I think it's important they learn about the world as it is. Um, And this is sort of Carol Hooven's argument, you know, the Harvard psychologist and author of a book about testosterone, but that's sort of the best I got is you can I'm just cautious about it because, like, it's easy for me sitting here in my apartment without a real boss to tell people, like, yeah, you should you should tell your manager to shove it and that you're not going to. But as you're saying, I think in practice, that's pretty hard to do. Right. Yeah. And I'm very lucky at my current position. I haven't been there for very long, but nothing's come up. And it's also early childhood. So, you know, I'm sort of shielded from a lot of that. But uh, I previously worked in mental health. Um. And I was a case manager um, for the family mental health department in my, um, or program in my company. Um, Well, and even though I was a case manager, I basically like performed therapy. And I had a client who identified as non-binary and it was very challenging because I could, because like the big conflict was like, you know, mom didn't think it was legitimate. And I looked at it and I'm like, you know, I see legitimate problems here, like mental health problems. And I think, yeah. you know, that this kid was projecting onto gender stuff because of all the reasons that we all know about TikTok and, yeah, you know, the because it also had like the identification started around the pandemic, like when they had to stay home from school. And um, unfortunately, I left that position before I discharged them. Uh, but I never really... That's really yeah, sad. I like, and difficult. really didn't know what to do because it's like, you know, I wanted to support, you know, I had to build my client's trust and I wanted to support them. And, but I could see, but I knew if I suggested, like, maybe it's not the like, if I went out directly and said it, that could really shatter my relationship with them. Yeah. And then it's like, and then I'm also affirming mom. Yeah. And then I'm like, well, you know, what do I do in the situation where it's like, I want to affirm the kid, but at the same time, I'm like, I know this isn't right. And there's just no blueprint. There's no model. It was very frustrating. Yeah. I, so I, I'm biased because I've, I've interviewed them and met them and I liked them, but I do think some of the writing uh, 
done by and the quotes given by Erica Anderson and Laura Edwards Leeper are helpful because like their quotes and writing in places like the Washington Post or the Atlantic in the case of my article and they're like established clinicians and, and you know, Erica Anderson is trans. That, that shouldn't be a factor, but of course it is. And I think you can point to them. The fact is a lot of clinicians know that gender is complicated and that external factors can influence a kid's sense of their gender. And this is actually being written into the latest um, adolescent guidelines for WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Healthcare. So I think to the extent you can point to mainstream sources and say, you know, I just want to make sure that, uh, what's going on in this kid's life and the, the kind of media they're consuming. I think until recently, it was pretty uncontroversial that those were just part of the overall getting a sense of who the kid is as part of like the assessment process, I think. Yeah. It, when I hear stories about kid, like it's so strange. Like I feel like I come like the experiences I've been in. Um, I also worked at an RTF, a residential treatment facility. And I feel like we screened and had very thorough histories on our kids and, you know, I never thought anything was ever misdiagnosed. And then I hear about, you know, kids who can go into a clinician and like 30 minutes later, they have like their preferred diagnosis. I'm like, that seems off. <laughs> like, yeah, I think there's some irresponsible clinical work going on. Unfortunately. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to answer my question. Thank you, Emily. I appreciate the call. Meg, what is up? Hey, um, so I kind of want to talk about that BuzzFeed article. Um, <laughs> well, not, <Yeah. laughs> not actually talk about it because <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> but it, it seems like what your niche is, is cultural, culture wars, cultural sort of touching po- uh, talking points. And Wait, hey, sorry, Meg, sorry, my brain's not working. Do you mean the Vox one on which, which BuzzFeed one? The, the one where silence white parents for trans rights. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but but so it seems like sort of what you do, you do the culture points thing. And then the other thing is you debunk bad journalism, which clearly that was. <laughs> yeah, I tried it. <laughs> um, and, there's, and obviously it makes sense because there's so much bad journalism. But I think one of the reasons why there's so much bad journalism is it's easy. It's, it's a lot easier for someone to be in their apartment and you know, write 1000 words of basically nothingness that will still rile up both sides and and get the clicks and and get the traffic than it is to write about China's influence on Africa and, and and like you say, that article was mostly just a recitation of talking points about like a million subjects. It it wasn't a coherent thing. And yeah, you know, she could have written it in her sleep, I bet. Exactly. And it, it, it's got all the keywords because, I mean, we're talking about it now, but it's 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 bad, not only bad journalism, but I think it's just bad from like a societal standpoint. And I guess, uh, well, not I guess, but my question to you is we get all caught up in like articles like this, but what are some articles or like things, What what is some news that you think isn't getting the light that it should, that you think more people should be aware of? You know, what would be like good journalism? What's a good topic that we don't hear enough about? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, my overall take on the reckoning is that it has been focused hugely on like issues affecting people who are already pretty well off. So like the, the, the focus on microaggressions and often implicit bias and all these like workplace blowups in places like the New York times. I just wrote about one in Planned Parenthood. I I just think like 
there's some good folks who cover poverty. Alec McGillis just wrote a really good book about Amazon and the people trying to like hold on to a decent middle class life by working for mostly in Amazon factories. But I think that stuff is expensive to cover, just like who gets what in America, who's left behind. And, and to write about that in an honest way that doesn't just make it a black-white issue requires significant resources and it requires getting out of the cities where journalism is increasingly clustered. So that's the kind of stuff I wish there was more of. And that, frankly, I wish I, I could do some of. It's just it's a heavy lift to do it well and to do it consistently. But I I think that's as important as ever. And I think that's like where I view America as something of a disappointment that we make it so hard despite our resources and wealth and success for people to just have like a comfortable life where they're not a broken leg away from um, financial ruin. So I guess that would be my answer. There's probably a million niche issues I'm not aware of uh, that deserve more attention than they get. But uh, yeah, I think my answer would basically be like how myopic the coverage of the quote unquote reckoning has been. Yeah. And I, I mean, you already said this, but I guess the other thing is, yeah, the other thing is people also aren't, in, aren't going to be engaged with something that's not as visceral as sort of like the pronoun things. Cause no matter what side you're on, you get very yeah. passionate about it. But, but if you are not an Amazon worker, a broken leg away from something, you know about it, but you just don't care as much. For some reason, it just doesn't hit hit you as much. So, well, I mean, that's part that's part of the problem. It's like I've always said that um, there's a really uh, the reason journalists care about gentrification and talk about it so much is because those are our neighborhoods. We live in gentrified neighborhoods. We often do, at least in like you know D.C., New York, Boston, San Francisco. I, it's sort of similar with some of the pronoun stuff where these are issues that could affect you if you're a middle class or upper, mid, upper middle class journalism at work. And and a lot of the culture wars within institutions have to do with like, frankly, 20 somethings mad that their elders disagree with them on hot button political issues. And they'll treat that as a matter of workplace rights or even safety. And it's a way of making it sound like they're, they're fighting the good fight, like a genuine labor battle, but it's so far removed from the concerns of anyone who is living paycheck to paycheck. I mean, I'm sort of repeating myself because I've made these points before, but it's just, it's crazy how some of the supposed social justice conversation has been hijacked from folks who are, who are doing pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. One, one last controversial question. Mm-hmm. Least favorite pizza style. God, least favorite pizza style. Well, this is a nerdy answer, but in Boston, the pizza is where I'm from. The pizza is approximately split between like generally Italian style and generally Greek style. Greek style is so much worse. Like as soon as you, I see a place is Greek, I'm disappointed. It's just this sort of cardboardy, slightly thicker. It's not good. Um, and then second, <laughs> so you cut out for sex again. Oh, I said it sounds like a very bigoted statement. It's incredibly. I, well, you know, I'm deeply anti-Greek. I try to, I, I hate the Greeks. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Meg. Shauna, what is up? Sorry, mind two finger delay there. Um, just quick, happy new year to you, Jesse. Thank you. Happy new year to you too. Uh, um, and thank you for the meetup last night. That was entertaining. Um, I wanted to make an offer and then I had a question. So my offer is uh, if you're willing to come to the Pacific Northwest, I will scope out uh, an appropriate theater because Katie won't, let's be honest. So just show <laughs> that out there. Do it for your charge. Yeah, I would love to do a live event. Yeah, thank you. Um, Washington or Oregon. Um, and then 
in the light of asking controversial questions, uh, reading articles, and I'm going to take an um, unpopular side here just for fun debate, but um, like paying for college tuition, for example, which in much of the media is considered almost this uh, no brainer should be a central part of build back better. So you mean abol- so abolishing college debt, basically? Basically, yes. Sorry. Or pro- I, sorry, I just want to make sure we're talking about the same thing. You mean yes. providing free college going forward, or abolishing? Um, you know, I guess that's a good question. Let's say, let's start with abolishing the debt people have. Um, and again, just to respectfully maybe play devil's advocate, when I read articles on this and and something that you've touched on before regarding journalists, as well as Matt Taibbi has touched on with journalism, but you know, sometimes the advocates for this, if you go and and look at their own educational background, often uh, attended private universities, um, whether small liberal arts colleges, large liberal elite colleges. Um, and so sometimes I, I question kind of that motivation of the American taxpayer paying for other people's education based upon um you know, A and B, where someone might want to choose to go to an elite university and want to have that paid for versus the person who went to public school, did well public school, um, got an academic scholarship to their local state university and leave with little to no debt, but a, a good education and can get a very good job. Um, didn't feel compelled to have other people pay for their elite education. And I'm trying to be respectful in how I'm asking this question too. But um, yeah, I mean, but well, it's, it's really complicated. If you go to a public university, you, you are having other people pay for your education. It's cheaper because it's state funded. And then at the very top, the very top tier schools often provide a lot of um, like in Ivy league, they do provide a lot of financial aid. Now they have a terrible problem with socioeconomic diversity, but they're not, I don't think a lot of people are going deeply into debt, um, you know, attending Harvard or Princeton. Um, My sense is that this is not an issue where I know much, but full blown canceling all existing student debt does strike me as a little bit unrealistic. And I, I wish we could better target the scammiest schools and the scammiest lenders. Cause I think there's a lot of corruption in the industry. And I definitely think government should help out someone who's like tens of thousands of dollars underwater. But I do think for a lot of people, um, college debt is something that in the long run is rational to take on. Cause they, there is a, a wage premium there. Uh, I'm not up on all the economics on this, but I just, I don't know the, the sort of full blown canceling of all student debt strikes me as, pretty politically unfeasible and, and unrealistic, but I don't know. I guess I'm biased. I also, I just think in general, I want us to be more like Europe and I want more state funding for stuff like that. I don't think people should have to go into a lot of debt uh, for higher education. I, I know you're saying that state universities are often an option, but in a lot of, a lot of states have really underfunded and frankly crappy state universities. So uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and I can appreciate that. I also, as someone who went to college, married to someone who went to college, yada, 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 for my own children, I don't know. 
I sort of evolved my way of thinking on this and realizing, you know, there's a lot of people who shouldn't go and get a bachelor's degree because, and I think even y'all have talked about this on previous episodes of um, BarPod that, you know, let's have some more plumbers. Let's have some people who have education and vocations that yeah. are useful to society without throwing people in um, and having them study some navel gazing. And my God, I, I sound old at this point, but um, <laughs> just kind of, I like to think about it because, you know, I left with college debt, but like as a boring mom now, I think about what the future with, you know, my own kids' education, but I'm not exactly, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's an interesting It'll be interesting to see how we move forward. So, um, but happy New Year's again. Thanks. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate the call. Jacob, I feel bad, but I'm going to skip you for now um, just because I actually have to log off and finish up the episode. But uh, just hold that question for next time and and I'll take it then. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening. I've been really happy with this. I've completely lost track of time. I think. I've been doing this show for 25 years now, and it's off to a really good first quarter century start. Uh, I appreciate you guys joining. As always, if you want to help me out, uh, you can do that easily by spreading the word. Tell people about Colin. Tell people about single-minded conversations. The numbers suggest that you guys are doing that. Like we're up over. Uh, this is a very new platform, but we're getting more than a thousand downloads, uh, and sometimes two per episode, which I think is um pretty good like when i look at other other sort of bigger folks on here so i'm really happy with this uh and thank you for joining and being a part of it and happy new year uh if i don't talk to you guys before then bye